This is the NOAA Ocean Podcast. I'm Troy Kitch. In 2010, scientists discovered multicellular animals that don't require oxygen to survive. They were buried deep in the sediment at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Aside from some types of very simple bacteria and single-celled organisms, these are the only other known life forms on our planet that can survive in a zero-oxygen environment. As with life on land, practically all ocean life is dependent on oxygen to survive. It's the key ingredient that makes life in the ocean work. The diversity and productivity of ocean life and the complex biochemical cycles that keep ocean life all in balance, it all depends on oxygen. Now here's the problem. The ocean isn't getting nearly enough of it. And this lack of oxygen is leading to a chronic condition called hypoxia. Areas in the ocean that experience these hypoxic conditions over long periods of time, they're called dead zones. And why that's so is going to be really clear later in this episode. So what's causing this problem? Why is it getting worse? And how is it getting worse? And can we do anything about it? To help us answer these questions, we're joined in this episode by NOAA scientist Alan Lewitis. Alan directs the Competitive Research Program for the National Centers for Coastal Ocean Science, part of the National Ocean Service. His job is to oversee NOAA grants awarded to researchers around the nation who study topics like hypoxia. It's research that targets improving the health of our coastal ecosystems. Well, hypoxia refers to uh, water conditions where the concentration of oxygen is so low that it is detrimental to organisms and very few organisms can survive in those conditions. Scientists refer to hypoxic waters as those waters where oxygen concentrations are below two milligrams per liter. Organisms that can swim away from those conditions do. They flee and so they avoid hypoxic waters, but not always. Sometimes they're trapped in embayments in other areas and so you see uh, many cases where hypoxia events are associated with uh, large-scale fish kills. But in the larger systems, they can flee, but you have other problems. Hypoxia can affect the habitat of fish. There's a loss of bottom fauna, which are important food sources. Uh, other organisms that can't move, such as shellfish and, and worms and so forth, are trapped and uh, often suffocate and die. As an example of how hypoxia can affect habitats, Alan pointed to the brown shrimp, a huge commercial fishery in the Gulf of Mexico. The area where hypoxia occurs today in the Gulf used to be the prime place for fishermen to harvest these shrimp. The habitat of the brown shrimp, the optimal habitat, was reduced by 25%. So you're taking away 25% of the habitat. There's other things too. Uh, Hypoxia by affecting the bottom fauna, you're taking away a food source for fish and crustaceans and other things. And that has ripple effects through the food chain. It's a cascading effect. And, he added, there are also sublethal effects on fish, which are becoming better understood as research progresses. Sublethal effects mean that the, the fish don't need to be affected through death. They can be affected by exposure to hypoxia, which has uh, certain physiological effects on fish function. And a couple of common ones that are being found with Gulf of Mexico studies are that the reproductive potential and growth potential of certain fish, especially bottom-dwelling fish, can be affected by even intermittent exposure to hypoxia. And you could imagine if these are bottom-dwelling fish that they're going to 
probably hang around the edges of the hypoxic zone, but they still maintain some exposure through foraging activities as well as escape activities from predators. So they are exposed in and out from the hypoxic zone. And just this intermittent exposure can lead to serious reproductive impairments, changes in sex, and other bizarre things. He added that scientists are now working on models that forecast how these cumulative sublethal effects from fish exposed off and on to hypoxia from year to year may be leading to long-term reductions in populations. Uh, it's, it's complicated because the more common effect of hypoxia on fish is not through fish kills. It's more commonly affects them through the sublethal effects um, and indirect effects effects that sort of cascade through the food chain, as well as some sublethal effects of hypoxia exposure on uh, reproductive impairments and growth, and reductions in growth potential. So these are hard to get at. You need uh, sophisticated models to try to um, separate those adverse effects on, on fish health from other factors is that sort of interact at the same time with, with hypoxia. But we're making some uh, headway with those models. Talking about this complexity brought us back to the brown shrimp in the Gulf of Mexico in a study that came out in 2017. And it found that in years where hypoxia was large, there was a, an effect on the size of shrimp that were sold at market. There was a, an increase in the proportion of smaller size shrimp that were sold. It may be that these uh, growth impairments of hypoxia on shrimp are at play and causing a reduction in the, in the growth rate. Another factor is that when hypoxia forms, uh, fish and shrimp aggregate around the edges. And, you know, they want to avoid the hypoxia, but they tend to stay around the edges, and there's a lot of reasons. There's, a, you know, there's an accumulation of food sources there. And, but the fishermen know this, so <laughs> they know where to go when hypoxia forms. They go around the edges, and they target the fish and shrimp in that way. So the other factor is that they think that some of the small shrimp are fished out and less make it to larger sizes. The bottom line is that the, uh, when there are large hypoxia years, there's an adverse effect on the economic profits of uh, local fishermen. Brown shrimp is the largest commercial market in the Gulf of Mexico, and it's a huge one, of course. And uh, so that's a significant finding. Allen said that hypoxia can occur naturally under certain conditions. Records indicate that past events, say earlier than 1970, were episodic and generally small. But today... Regions of the ocean experiencing hypoxia can be truly massive. Take the Gulf of Mexico, where scientists funded by NOAA map the size of a dead zone that appears every year. In 2017, it was measured at 8,776 square miles, about the size of New Jersey. It was the largest ever recorded. Why are dead zones larger today and what's causing this? It's all about human activity. The culprit is runoff of polluted water that's carrying tons of excess nutrients from agriculture and developed land from our interior waterways out to the ocean. But nutrients are a good thing, right? Yeah, so nutrients are uh, an essential element for plants and algae. 
so nitrogen, phosphorus are examples of nutrients that are uh, needed by plants. And so they are a good thing from the standpoint that you have to have them to grow crops, for instance. But the problem is when they're supplied in excess, they can become a bad thing. If you uh, over-fertilize a field, crops can't take up all that fertilizer, so a lot of it leaks into water systems. And these water systems carrying all this extra fertilizer ultimately flow to the ocean. For the Mississippi, this watershed is the third largest in the world and includes about 40% of the continental United States. Too much of the fertilized water we put on crops in the breadbasket of the U.S. eventually ends up right in the Gulf. You have an immense amount of fertilizer application for the corn crops and so forth. A lot of it is leaked. Corn is actually a very inefficient plant in terms of using fertilizer, so a lot of it leaks out if not applied in, in you know, a strategic way. And the nutrients are carried down the river into the Gulf of Mexico where they stimulate algal blooms. Algae depend on nutrients uh, and it's good from the standpoint of providing you know, the base of the food chain in aquatic systems. But when you have excess nutrients, you have excess algal growth. They could form blooms. So these nutrients that were intended to be used by crops on land wash away to the sea, where they can lead to an explosive bloom of algae. It's a process called nutrient loading. I asked Alan to connect the dots on how these blooms can lead to hypoxia. And what happens is nutrients lead to uh, excessive algal growth, which leads to algal blooms. And the algal blooms at some point start degrading and sinking to the bottom. And bacteria work on these these algae, they can decompose the algae, and as they do that, they're consuming oxygen from the water. So that leads to low oxygen water or hypoxia. So as the algal bloom dies off and sinks to the bottom, bacteria eat the algae up, consuming lots of oxygen. What's left behind is a low oxygen dead zone on and near the seafloor. Now you might wonder why these conditions persist. After all, if you've ever seen the ocean, I'm sure most of you have, the ocean is always sloshing around and mixing, right? Well, Alan said that's because water layers of different temperature, salinity, and density don't like to mix. So the fresher water coming in from, say, the Mississippi River doesn't mix well with the hypoxic water on the bottom. He said that this layering of the water is called stratification. Stratification often occurs when fresh water is loaded into a system which creates a barrier for mixing so that the fresh water sits on top of the more saline water. So bottom waters are restricted from mixing with high oxygenated uh, surface waters. So that combination of high stratification and high nutrient loading are the uh, factors that in combination can lead to your most problematic hypoxic zones the ones that are very large scale, as well as long lived for a long period of time. For the Gulf of Mexico, dead zones start to form in the spring because that's when crops are getting fertilized heavily. Hypoxic conditions persist in peat sometime in the summer because conditions are right then to keep the water layers from mixing. Then the dead zone dissipates in the fall and winter when the flow of nutrients slow down and temperatures and other conditions are more favorable for the water in the Gulf to more readily mix together. Then it starts all over again during the next spring. But nutrients aren't the only factor contributing to less oxygen in the ocean. There's another big variable that complicates the hypoxia problem, climate change. 
I asked Alan how global warming factors in. There is a link between climate change and hypoxia, and it's, it all goes in the wrong direction. <laughs> the, the factors that we think about in terms of climate change and the, and the models are telling us um, that they're all um, sort of leaning towards uh, promoting more hypoxia in the future if we don't do th anything about it. In the open ocean, you have global warming, which is causing a greater and greater rate of deoxygenation of open ocean waters. Allen said this is mainly due to three factors. Oxygen is less soluble with high temperatures, so less of it dissolves into the ocean. Marine life consumes more oxygen because higher temperatures contribute to higher metabolic rates. And higher temperatures leads to more stratification meaning the more oxygenated surface water doesn't mix well with the more hypoxic bottom waters. So those are we're working in the direction of reducing oxygen in the open ocean. Now, in the coastal areas, those same factors are working in the same way. There's a, not as great an effect observed yet in the coastal areas, but models tell us that global warming is going to work in that general direction in terms of reducing uh, oxygen levels, increasing hypoxia. And he said climate change is also contributing to more nutrients entering our coastal waterways. The arrows are pointing to an increase in nutrient loading with things like greater uh, frequency of storm events or greater precipitation in certain areas. And those lead to both you know, higher nutrient loads off the, off the land. In addition, they will lead to greater freshwater input into coastal waters, which will increase the stratification. So these are the, the forecasts that our models are telling us right now. And this leads back to what Alan says is the primary way we can help to reduce the growing problem of hypoxia, by reducing the amount of nutrients flowing into our ocean. The best management strategy is to reduce nutrient loading from the watershed. A huge challenge, especially in large watersheds. Um, and the classic example is the Gulf of Mexico hypoxic zone. 41% of the United States contiguous drains into the Gulf of Mexico. So you can imagine the management challenge. And now there is a, uh, an interagency Gulf hypoxia task force that has been around for a number of years. It's composed of five federal agencies, 12 state agencies, and a tribal association. And they have as their primary goal to reduce the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico to a certain level by a certain year. And in order to achieve that goal, they need to reduce nutrient uh, loading in the watershed uh, by a certain amount. And they've had all this figured out quantitatively through actually the models that we develop help inform them of that. However, it's not an easy task. You have to get all the states, you know, all the state agencies uh, in agreement, uh, working in the same direction, a lot of uh, effort, coordination effort to do that. Um, you have to have the resources, the money to support different practices. So it's a huge challenge. They're making some progress, but it, it takes years and years and years to do that sort of thing. While reducing the fertilizer and other nutrients that flow into the Gulf of Mexico is a work in progress, Allen said that there are dead zone reduction success stories 
He called out Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island, where the nutrient problem is mainly due to sewage and wastewater treatment plants. So that's a much easier thing to regulate. And actually, in response to a fish kill on the order of a decade ago, the state imposed regulations on the the sewage treatment plants to reduce nutrient loading by 50%. They achieved that goal and our studies showed that hypoxia was reduced as a result. The bay turned from a eutrophic bay to an oligotrophic bay, which means cleaner, <laughs> cleaner water essentially, better water quality. Um, they haven't uh, achieved the ultimate goal with respect to hypoxia yet. They might need to actually reduce nutrients a little more, but they're going in a great direction, so that's a real success story there. So yeah, uh, hypoxia can, can be uh, mitigated. I wrapped up our talk by asking what drives Alan forward when working on intractable coastal problems like hypoxia. He stressed that NOAA supports the research and provides information, tools, and training to coastal managers, and the coastal managers make it happen. But he said he and his colleagues take some ownership when those successes occur. Hypoxia is a challenging field to work in. It's a double-edged sword because the payoff is great. Having some influence on activities that will lead to reduction in such an important stressor and ultimately societal benefits from that is what I'm working for. The other edge of the sword is it often is a long, long road uh, with lots of fights along the way. And so it's not like there's very frequent and numerous successes, but they're, the successes when they do come are great. And that's what keeps me going. And there have been some. The Gulf of Mexico is still ongoing, still a challenge, and we haven't seen the benefits of that entirely yet, though we know we're, we're moving the needle. Thanks to Alan Lewitis for joining us on the program. Alan is director of the Competitive Research Program for the National Centers for Coastal Ocean Science. And thank you for listening to the NOAA Ocean Podcast. Head to oceanservice.noaa.gov to learn about what we do.